If you brought your, <clears throat> your copy of God's Word with you, open with me this morning to the book of Matthew, We're picking up in Matthew chapter 2. where we finished off last week, and <clears throat> you can see I've titled my message this morning, Jesus, Hitched to the Old Testament. And I, I thought about this because as we've been making our way through from Matthew chapter 1 all the way through Matthew chapter 2 thus far, it occurred to me that Matthew is laboring very diligently towards that purpose. He is, he is linking, he's hitching Jesus to the Old Testament in a very powerful and a very profound way, demonstrating that he is the long-awaited promised Messiah as has been foretold by the prophets. And I was reminded uh, in that context of a sermon that was preached in 2018 uh, by one Andy Stanley, who's a pastor of one of the largest evangelical churches in America today. And in that sermon, he said this, Peter, James, Paul elected to unhitch the Christian faith from their Jewish scriptures. And my friends, we must as well. And I've, I remember when that, when that sermon dropped in 2018, and I remember the, um, the controversy that such a statement like that brought, because you see Andy Stanley is a, a graduate, he's an alumni of Dallas Theological Seminary, as am I, and as an alum together with this brother, I thought, I was thinking, what, <laughs> what is he thinking? And so since 2008, he's had many opportunities to give clarification to that statement. And in every one that I've ever read, it, he doesn't really do himself any favors. And so I was just struck by the, the reality that what Matthew's been doing thus far in his gospel is the complete opposite of what Andy Stanley said we must do regarding the Jewish scriptures and the unhitching of one's Christian faith from them. You don't need to believe the Old Testament in order to have faith in Jesus. You don't need to believe the miracles of the Old Testament. You don't need to believe the God of the Old Testament. He was a different kind of God than the God we have in the New Testament. Whatever you want to form or structure that, <clears throat> it's a statement that um, has made its way across evangelicalism. And in so much that he's as large of a figure as he is, perhaps many of you are even familiar with said sermon and then many of the um, interviews that he has had since. Well, Matthew thus far in chapters 1 and chapter 2 where we've gotten so far showed us the hitching of Jesus and that he was of the right genealogy. As a matter of fact, he took the effort to go from Abraham in tracing out his genealogy um, all the way to his father Joseph, who was the husband of Mary, connecting Jesus firmly within Jewish scriptures for the sole purpose of, a, of an apologetic, of demonstrating. You cannot separate this one from the promises of the Old Testament. Secondly, Jesus, Matthew showed us, was the Son of God. Convincing uh, proof of that was the virgin birth, born of the Holy Spirit, Again, in fulfillment 
of the Jewish scriptures and prophecy. And then thirdly, uh, Matthew showed us Jesus' kingly birth and how that was revealed by God to the Magi who were under supervision of none other than Daniel the prophet, the, the Old Testament prophet, and um, how they probably, that group of Magi since the times of Daniel, were anticipating one king that would be born of Daniel's people, just like they had learned from Daniel. Now, <clears throat> just try to imagine how reaffirming it must have been for both Joseph and Mary when these unexpected and uninvited guests show up at their house in Bethlehem some two years following Jesus' birth. They were the ones that said, these magi, where is he who's been born, and what do they say, king of the Jews, um, again, firmly connecting Jesus with the Jewish scriptures. Where is he who's been born the king of the Jews? I'm sure they quickly connected this pronouncement with the dream that Joseph had previously about not divorcing Mary because the child in her was conceived of the Holy Spirit. And I'm sure that Mary was mindful of the same when she had been visited by the the angel Gabriel, and he told her that she was going to conceive in her womb and bear a son and name him Jesus, and that he would be great and would be called the Son of the Most High God, and that the Most High God was going to give him the throne of his father David, King David, as promised in those Jewish scriptures, thus making him a king, but not only that, but that his kingdom, as the angel Gabriel told Mary, would have no end as Daniel would have clearly articulated to the Magi. Now, I know how fast two years can pass, and I'm sure many of you are very familiar with the passing of two years and how quickly that goes as well, unless, of course, you're in uh, junior high school or high school. That, for some reason, seems to be the oddest time in life when time seems to just drag by very slowly. And then as soon as you get out into college, time goes at a warp pace, and you don't know that unless you have experienced that. But um, I heard that when I was young, and I can now testify to that. But can you imagine how long those two years must have seemed to Joseph and Mary? They were hit some with, with some really big news, and then Jesus was born, and they're probably thinking, now what? We're two years down the road. When these beautiful magi show up with gifts for the one that they were foretelling was born the king of the Jews, affirming the very things that the angelic visions had been telling them some two years previously. And I'm sure they were thinking, okay, so what are we supposed to do now in light of all of these things? Again, it must have been great encouragement and assurance that they hadn't lost their minds and that they hadn't dreamt all that stuff up. This truly must have been some good news. And in our passage this morning, where we're picking up this morning in Matthew, he once again is going to demonstrate for us, as he did for them, that Jesus, as, as the Lord did for them, that Jesus is the right, long-awaited Messiah King who's hitched solidly to the Old Testament scriptures not only hitched, I would say rooted into the very Old Testament scriptures, and in particular, as we're going to see 
Matthew continue this morning in predictive prophecy and in predictive types of prophecy that Jesus was also thus the fulfillment of. And so I'm going to just state right on the front end of this message, the passage this morning, though I, I articulated very clearly that, that Daniel chapter 11 must be the hardest chapter in the entire Bible to articulate and preach on clearly, without, without exception, I think Matthew chapter 2 and the latter portion of it comes in a close second. So the things that we're going to be talking about this morning are very nuanced aspects of interpretation and exegetical work within the text. In other words, you've got to put your thinking cap on this morning. If you thought we were going to have you know, a feel-good story at the beginning, three points, and I'm going to emotionally charge you to love Jesus greater this morning, Matthew is engaging your mind, and he's wanting you to think deeply about who this Jesus is, because if you're going to give your life to him and follow him as the disciples did and die for him like they did, we don't think about living and dying in our following of Jesus here in the great United States of America, but let me tell you, they did. And Matthew is rooting Jesus in, into some very technical things from the Old Testament scriptures so that they would know for certain that he's the man worth following and dying for. So there's some very... The, the, these passages, we, we read over them when Christmas comes and we sing the songs and we say amen. But when you really start kind of trying to figure out exactly how do you piece this together, it gets pretty challenging. So it's been a privilege kind of working through that this week. And um, I'm probably going to say some things today and you're, and you're going to be going like, come again? But I can only say it once. I, I can't like go back and repeat some of these things. And I say them with a great deal of humility as well. In that, I've got about four of my favorite commentaries that I go to. And they're solid. And all four of them have differing opinions on these passages, on these texts. And so I've come up with my own. In light of my reading and in light of my research. So I'm going to tell you right up front, you need to be like a Berean. If you're not interested in studying the Word of God, then this sermon for you this morning might be a little bit out of your wheelhouse, but if you're into really wanting to know the Word of God and studying the Word of God and knowing it deeply so that you can have a more intimate relationship with Him, this is the kind of passage that's going to drive you in that direction. Amen? And hence, we are a Bible church. We study the Bible so that it, being the power of God, can transform and change your life from the inside out by His Spirit as we learn to walk and trust and obey in him. So we're going to backtrack just a little bit, and we're going to pick up with the first of those predictive prophecies that we looked at last week, and we're going to do this one very quickly, and then we're going to get to the next three that finish chapter 2. So we're going to jump back to Matthew chapter 2, 4 through 6, just by way of reminder this morning. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he, that's Herod, inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet. Verse 6, And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So the prophecy here of Micah 5, 2, according to Matthew, was fulfilled at the birth of Jesus. And was thus used by Matthew to demonstrate it and to convince all people everywhere that Jesus was the rightful prophesied Messiah King 
who was born, as the Magi said, king of the Jews in keeping with the word of God, the Jewish scriptures. Now, beginning with verse 13, Matthew, chapter 2, verse 13, Matthew does uh, this kind of thing three more times. He brings in some Old Testament references, some Old Testament prophetic typological references, and he says this is like this. Like this is what happened with Jesus is like this from the Old Testament. And sometimes he says this is in direct fulfillment of it, or it's a direct fulfillment of the type of the thing that he, he talks about there in the Old Testament. So now let's jump ahead to the next section and where we pick up this morning in verse 13. Notice. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up. Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So here in verse 13, the true motives of Herod are revealed, which is why God appeared to Joseph in a dream and warned him, telling him to get up, take the child, his mother, flee to Egypt and stay there. And notice what he says, until I tell you. This is one of the things that lets us know that Joseph who was described as a righteous man, had a living, active relationship with the Lord. Joseph was sensitive to the Lord, sensitive to the Lord's voice through the Old Testament scriptures. And then when the Lord appeared to him in, in a dream, Joseph was sensitive to the Lord. So Joseph was familiar with God. Joseph wasn't a novice in his walk with God. Perhaps maybe like an Enoch who walked with God. It seems that Joseph was a righteous man who walked with God. He was, he was ready to hear the voice of God. So, verse 14, Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. Simple question, what does Joseph do here? Well, as soon as God tells Joseph to get up, what did Joseph do? It says that he got up and he went. You ever wish you were a little more like Joseph on some occasions? Like you, you read the word of God and God says, do this. And immediately upon seeing in the scriptures the kind of person you are in need of change, you, like Joseph, you get up and you go and you do the very thing that God told Joseph to do and God through his word tells us to do. Why is trusting in a sure word from God oftentimes so hard and so difficult for us to do? What might have happened had Joseph taken six months to make deliberations over whether he wanted to obey that word from God? I hear your word, I hear what you're saying, God, but I need some time to really figure out if that's really the best options for me right now. Imagine if Joseph had kind of waited sometimes to obey God like we sometimes wait to obey God. Perhaps things would turn out quite differently, and perhaps this is the reason the scriptures say that Joseph was a righteous man, because when God spoke, Joseph listened. And not only did he listen, Joseph was one of those people who did what? He trusts, and then what? Obeyed immediately. He got up in that very night and he took his wife and his child and went out into the dark and started making his way to Egypt because he heard God's voice speak to him. By the way, friends, this is why we read our Bibles. Amen? 
This is why we say it's important to have quiet times to read the Bible so that we will know what God has told us to do so that we, like Joseph, can perfect that beautiful practice of trusting and obeying the Word of God in our day. So by way of application, if any of us here this morning, and knowingly not in a place of obeying the Word of God in any area of our life, uh, perhaps this would be the kind of good morning where we find um, repentance within our heart and we leave here today more convinced than when we first came that obeying the voice of the Lord our God through His Word is not only the right thing to do but the only way to go in life. God's commands, like here with Joseph, are always for our ultimate good and spiritual growth. He'll never tell us to do something that's not for our ultimate good and for our spiritual growth. It may seem difficult. It may seem hard. It might not even feel like it's something you want to do. But it will always lead for our ultimate good and spiritual growth growth. Can you imagine how scary it must have been for Joseph to pick up his, his wife and his child immediately in the night and to start heading down towards Egypt? Just try to walk two steps in those shoes. It's a man of faith. Notice verse 15. It says, he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. So here's one of those fulfillment concepts. It says, out of Egypt I called my son. So Joseph with his family, Mary and baby Jesus, stayed in a foreign land completely inconvenienced for as long as it took Herod to die. Now, how convenient do you suppose those gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh became at this time as Joseph would have been in need of financial resources to take care of his family during the trip to Egypt, during his stay in Egypt, and then the eventual trip back to Israel. For whatever length of time it may have been, that gold, frankincense, and myrrh, you might say, came at just a very, in a very timely way. So just another little observation, when God gives commands, he always supplies the means by which it can be accomplished and fulfilled. Whether that's financial resources, intellectual resources, emotional resources, as a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 1.3 that God has blessed his kids with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, God has supplied us with every spiritual resource through the Holy Spirit in Christ Jesus that we would need to live a life of godliness, giving us the ability to trust and thus to obey. And you say, well, pastor, that's nice and convenient, but these, sometimes these financial hardships, man, they just jump up and come out of the, out of the blue from nowhere how do, you, how, how, how do you think God provides for everybody's financial need like that? Well, I don't know how he does it because I'm not God. He didn't ask me of, if I needed to understand how he does it. But I can tell you in my short little life, in my short little life, every single time I've had a need, a financial need, 
God has always provided for me and my family along the way. Every single time. In big ways and sometimes in smaller ways. I had one time when I was in, at the University of North Texas, still a student in, col- in, in college. Um, actually, I think I just started Dallas Seminary, living there in Denton still. I just started Dallas. And Lisa was working for a family there in Denton. And tax time had come and gone. And I barely made any money at all. I mean, I had these two little bitty part-time jobs. And I made so little money, they never took any tax out. So come tax season, obviously, I wasn't going to owe any money, right? Doesn't that make sense? I mean, when you make so little money that they never even take any out along the way, surely when you get to the end, you're not going to owe anything. But whenever I did all the tax stuff, it said I owed like $950. And I was floored. And I think, to me, that's like a mountain that I don't know how I'm going to get around or over. And so on, what was it, uh, April the 14th, I'm telling Lisa, I said, we're going to have to, we're gonna ha- I'm going to have to call and I'm going to have to put it together a plan with the, with the IRS. After all, he's my uncle, Uncle Sam. I mean, your uncle loves you, right? Everybody's uncle loves him. So Uncle Sam's going to be very generous and understanding and will make a good plan for us without question. And so that was on the 14th. And then it just maybe, I don't know, three hours later that day, David, I got a phone call. Randomly, out of the blue. And it was from the man that Lisa was working for. He and his wife were both doctors. And he says, hey, um, you guys have any needs? And she says, well, let me give you Ben. And so I'm, hello. Hey, Ben, this is, uh, what's it? You know, hey, I remember one time, I remember when I was young in college. And I know sometimes it was hard to pay the, pay the, uh, the you know, any, any bills. Is, uh, you owe any money to the government? Should I tell him? Well, of course you should tell him. That's why God had him call. Well, as a matter of fact, <clears throat> uh, uh, yes, I do. And I told him the whole story, and he let out a few explicitives like, you know, weren't you planning ahead, son? Why didn't you have him take some dollars out? And I said, well, they, I made so little, they never took any out. I didn't think I would owe anything at the end. That day, he sent this one right here home with a check in the exact amount that we owed the government. And that next day on the 15th, it was in the mail going to my uncle, and he loved me for it. (laughs) It's amazing how God can supply every one of your needs, even financially, when you find yourself in a pinch and a bind. And so way back then, Lisa and I, we started kind of keeping it like a little little journal, like of all the unique ways, you know, when we said, God, we're going to go with you, we're going broke with you all the way to the end. We're going to do exactly what you tell us to do to the best of our ability just to walk with you. We started keeping track of ways that God provided for us physically, intellectually. Intellectually, I did mention that one, right? Somehow yours truly got through two years of Hebrew at Dallas Theological Seminary. If you don't think that was a provision of God intellectually, you didn't know me very well. And don't laugh, you haven't seen Hebrew. You th- I'm telling you, I don't think you could do any better than I did. You need, I needed intervention of the Holy Spirit to get me through Hebrew just like you would have needed it. So whether it's financially, intellectually, emotionally, whatever you need, when God calls you to do something, he will always provide for you the resources to enable you to trust and obey. And I promise you there's no other way to be what? Happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Life really is that simple, folks. Joseph is a great example of that very thing. Now, notice 
Notice the end there of, of verse 15. This little piece right here. This is the part that's really unique. Um, this was to fulfill what had been spoken. So this, this was to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So Joseph taking his family into Egypt because Herod was seeking to kill the Christ child and destroy him is in fulfillment of what the prophet spoke a long time ago that out of Egypt I called my son. And this prophet is Hosea and that passage is out of Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 says, when Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, in the original context, Hosea is recalling how God had always loved Israel, and after many years of bondage and slavery in Egypt under Pharaoh, God, through Moses, called Israel, here referred to as God's son, out of Egypt. God redeemed Israel from bondage and slavery and brought her across the waters of judgment, the Jordan River, and into the land of promise. And in doing this, God was keeping faith and promise with himself. And that he had promised Abraham with a binding oath, what we call the Abrahamic covenant, those Jewish scriptures that Jesus in his genealogy was connected to, Abraham, notice, that he would bless all the families of the earth through Abraham, through one of his offspring. Now, listen to what God told Abraham just prior to making that covenant with him. We see this in Genesis 15, verses 12 through 14. It says, Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram, and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, and they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. Now remember, God had already taken Abram outside and said, look into the stars of heaven as if you can count the stars of heaven, so will your descendants be. So he knew that God was promising him something very, uh, of very grand, on a very grand scale. And here he's letting him know that those descendants of yours are going to be strangers, they're going to be enslaved, they're going to be oppressed 400 years. But, verse 14, I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. Here we see God telling Abraham in advance what was going to happen to his descendants, that they will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, they will be enslaved, oppressed 400 years, this is obviously a direct reference to Israel's bondage and slavery in Egypt. But what did God say? Verse 14, and afterwards they will come out with many possessions. They will come out. God predicts here in Genesis 15 that he is going to bring his son out of Egyptian bondage and slavery before they even went in. But guess who else was coming out of Egypt? A singular seed, a yet future descendant of Abraham, the very one whom God by oath swore he would bless the entire world with. And that seed is Jesus, God's son. 
And it's for this reason that Matthew can declare with such precision and certainty that what was spoken by the Lord to the prophet Hosea was fulfilled. In its fullest sense, in the birth of Jesus, as the Magi said, one born the king of the Jews, the very son of God whom God called out of Egypt all those years ago, and in the fullness of time, Matthew has adequately shown, beginning in chapter 1, verse 1, by taking Jesus' genealogy all the way back to, and if you remember from verse 1, Abraham. And as such, God used the context of Herod and his desire to destroy the toddler Jesus as a way of simulating what God did to the nation of Israel's deliverance out of Egypt in preserving the blessed seed of promise that was made to Abraham, the very one who would be a blessing to the entire world, and that seed is Christ. Matthew here is simply saying, here he is. Here's the promised seed, and oh, by the way, this one is the very Son of God. Now, we could go to Galatians chapter 3 and look at verse 8 or verse 14 or verse 16, where the Apostle Paul states this truth very directly, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham, that Jesus is the promised seed of Abraham, but for our purposes this morning, we don't have time to go there. So write those down. Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, verse 14, verse 16. Read that entire context of chapter 3, and you will see the Apostle Paul saying that Jesus was the promise to Abraham, the seed of blessing. Now notice again in our context how Matthew is going to continually hitch Jesus to those Old Testament Jewish scriptures. He did it in a very formidable way there with regard to the fulfillment and the, the ultimate fulfillment of Hosea 11. One, one, would you say not? Without question he does that. But he even now is going to hitch Jesus and the events surrounding Jesus' birth, following that miraculous birth, the, the, the events surrounding that as a type of fulfillment to Old Testament historical narrative in this next section. Notice verse 16. In verse 16, he continues. He says, Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem in all its vicinity, from two years old and under, according to the time which had been determined from the Magi. Verse 17, then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. Verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted because they were no more. Tragically, Herod, after discovering the Magi, did not report back to him the whereabouts of this child whom he wanted to worship, well, destroy, the newly born king of the Jews. Herod became enraged and ordered the massacre of all the male children who lived in Bethlehem and its vicinity from two years old and younger. And honestly, if you try to walk a step in some of those shoes, we can't imagine what kind of weeping and mourning that would be like, can we? That's truly a grief that can't be spoken without question. 
And yet here again, Matthew uses this historical event to show how even the circumstances, as, tragically, as tragic as they were following Jesus' birth, was a type of fulfillment likened to the Old Testament scriptures regarding Rachel, the wife of the patriarch Jacob, yet that in a very unique way. The text which Matthew is quoting here is from Jeremiah 31, verse 15, and Perhaps Jeremiah 31 is somewhat of a familiar passage with you because it's in Jeremiah 31 that we find the, the, uh, that context of the giving of the new covenant that was inaugurated in whose blood? The blood of Jesus when at the cross of Calvary. Yeah, from that same passage in Jeremiah 31. And so here in Jeremiah 31 verse 15, Jeremiah, under inspiration of the Spirit of God, says this. He said, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel's weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And Matthew uses this as a fulfillment type of what took place when Herod decided to massacre all the children from two years old and younger from in Bethlehem and its surrounding vicinity. Again, this is a rather difficult passage to understand, this Jeremiah 31, 15. After all, when you think about it, Rachel only had two of Jacob's 12 sons, and she died in childbirth with Benjamin while they were making their way towards Bethlehem. Didn't make it to Bethlehem. So how is it that Rachel's voice was heard in Ramah exactly, bitterly weeping over the loss of her children? Well, we understand from Jeremiah's use of Rachel here to be a symbolic use of Rachel's place or Rachel's position within the nation of Israel. And most specifically, viewing her as a matriarch of the nation and that she was married to Jacob and Jacob was the father of the 12 children that made up the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. And it's reasonable to assume that Rachel, when she died in childbirth with Benjamin, was likely buried there in Ramah, and in, as Matthew's use of Jeremiah, it seems to confer that that would probably have been the place that she was buried. Ramah is a town that's about five miles north of Jerusalem. Now, keep in mind here, um, where did it say that Herod slaughtered all the children? It said Bethlehem and its surrounding vicinity, which no doubt would have included cities like Ramah. Without question. Well, in Jeremiah 31, now hang with me because this, I told you, this, this is a very difficult passage. God, through the prophet, is bringing a word of hope. A word of restoration to the children of Israel who had been taken captive and exiled to Babylon. And in the context of Doing that is where we find verse 15, where Rachel is weeping unconsolably for her children, which makes verse 15 seem a bit like an odd and out-of-place passage in the larger and broader context of Jeremiah chapter 31. And it's this very verse that's used, it seems, by Jeremiah the prophet under the inspiration of the Spirit as a backdrop where Rachel, the symbolic mother of Israel, is envisioned by the prophet, as if alive in her tomb and bitterly weeping for her children, the children of Israel, who no doubt were taken into Babylonian captivity in the early 6th century B.C., 
they would have been marched through the town of Ramah on their way to Babylon. And in the very burial place where Rachel was buried, Israel's mother, this happened right before her, metaphorically speaking, eyes. In the 6th century, in 586 B.C. And we know from Jeremiah chapter 40 verse 1 that Ramah was indeed a town at which the captives were gathered for their march to Babylon in 586 B.C. Jeremiah 40 verse 1 says that explicitly, that it was in Ramah where the exiles were gathered for their marching from Jerusalem, out of Jerusalem, up towards Babylon. And Rachel is envisioned here in Jeremiah 31, 15 as, as Israel's children are passing through Ramah on their way to Babylon as being unconsolable, weeping and mourning for her children who are no more, who are being taken captive into Babylonian captivity because of their unfaithfulness to Yahweh. And what Matthew is saying is that the weeping and mourning of the mothers all across the towns of Bethlehem and its surrounding vicinity is likened to Rachel's inconsolable weeping and mourning as she watched her children taken to captivity. But how? You see, God through the prophet Jeremiah, we see in that context, doesn't leave symbolic Rachel there without hope. As bad as this truly was, and not diminishing the tragic nature of the situation at all, in Jeremiah 31, the very next verse, verse 16, and then verse 17, notice what Yahweh says regarding this mourning and this weeping. Thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work will be rewarded, declares the Lord, and they will return from the land of the enemy. God, through Jeremiah, letting Rachel, Mother Rachel, know who's weeping for her children who are being taken away to captivity. But stop your weeping because I'm going to bring them back. I am going to bring them back from the land where they have been taken by their enemy. In verse 17, there is hope for your future, declares the Lord, and your children will return to their own territory. There's a day when the nation of Israel will be coming back. The children of Israel will come back to their own territory. And it's here where we see that the Lord has plans of regathering Rachel's children and of giving them a hope and a future. And as we saw from the book of Daniel... That regathering had both a near fulfillment and a yet future fulfillment. And it seems to me that Matthew must have had this broader context in mind with the recognition that in Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah King of Israel, that as bad as the slaughter of the children must have been, the coming restoration of the nation of Israel, Through Jesus, that still yet future fulfillment of restoration in a millennial kingdom and beyond is the assurance of their hope for a future in the very land that God swore to Abraham when he made his covenant with him back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Just like he promised a son, a seed, and he brought that son, that seed out of Egypt He also promised Abraham land. 
and blessing. And it seems to me that what Matthew is doing here is saying that Jesus, he's that one. He's that one that's going to ultimately bring the stopping of the weeping and the unconsolable tears to this nation of Israel and the fulfillment, the yet future fulfillment. There was an immediate fulfillment we saw in Daniel's prophecy. They were under Cyrus. They were brought out of captivity. They went back to their homeland. They started rebuilding the temple. They started rebuilding the walls under Nehemiah. They started rebuilding the city. There was an immediate short-term fulfillment. But it seems here that Matthew is clearly tapping into that yet future fulfillment that was also shown in the book of Daniel of a future king who was going to come and establish a kingdom for the nation of Israel whose foundations would endure forever and ever and ever. You following me? I told you this is difficult, didn't I? And notice what one of my commentators that I really like said about this, <laughs> about this passage he says, this is one of Matthew's most elusive Old Testament quotations and few claim with any confidence to have fathomed just what he intended. But the creativity which he displays in many of his formula quotations perhaps encourages us to believe that in giving so prominent a place to Jeremiah 31.15, he had more in mind than simply to point out that there was a precedent for sorrow arising out of the loss of children, even if we know lack now lacked the key to unlocking the fuller meaning that some of his readers may have been able to draw from the quotation. In other words, there's probably some of Matthew's readers, some of those Jews who were intimately known with the Jewish scriptures, perhaps a little more intimately than we, they might have picked up on this very quickly. But indeed, is this not a difficult passage to kind of ferret it out and trying to understand exactly what Matthew's doing here? But what he's doing is he's letting his Jewish readership know and anybody know who takes the time to read and to think deeply that this Jesus, who was born of miraculous birth, virgin birth, he is the long-awaited Messiah King in accordance with Old Testament scriptures. And you can place your faith and trust in him even if it costs you your life because he's the king from heaven. He's God in a bod. And if you die for him on this earth, he says you've not lost anything, but instead you've gained everything. That's this one. That, that's this king from heaven right here. Isn't that good? And finally, the last prophecy that Matthew mentions in chapter 2 deals with the return journey of Joseph and his family from their stay in Egypt, beginning in verse 19. It says, but when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said. So here in verse 19, we see the Lord did for Joseph, just like he told him he was going to do back in verse 13. That he would let Joseph know when it was time to make that move back to Israel. So in verse 20, he tells Joseph, now's the time. Verse 20, get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel for those who sought the child's life are dead. Verse 21, so Joseph got up. We see this exact same language. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Once again, Joseph immediately and completely in obedience to the voice of God in his life. He got up. He took Jesus and Mary out of Egypt back into the land of Israel. And you know, this is the kind of pattern that we see in Joseph's his life of a promptness and of, of a complete obedience to the word of God in his life. 
And while this is perhaps some of the most that we know about Joseph, about his life and about his character, other than the fact that he was by trade a carpenter, isn't it truly the best part of this man and what's made this man one whom God would choose when you think about it? One whom God would choose and entrust with the care and the training, the earthly training and care and discipleship, the training in the scriptures, and just the training to be a, a righteous man that he would entrust his own son Jesus to. Joseph is that kind of guy. And it's perhaps because of this kind of mentorship and training and discipleship that Joseph poured into Jesus' life that Jesus grew up being the man that he became as well. I think sometimes we just too quickly say, yeah, but he's God, and you know, God's perfect, and God's going to always just do God-like things. That's true, but he's, also, he's the God-man. He's 100% man. He's 100% God. I think Joseph was working on the, on the man side, right? I mean, Joseph can't work. How's Joseph going to work on the God side? Well, he, but he, he can't, but he, he can work on the man side. And it seems that God knew exactly what he was doing in putting Jesus in righteous Joseph's life. Might we too be described as a man like Joseph whose pattern, whose habit is of prompt and complete obedience to the word of God. Amen? Might that be said of each and every one of us? And as we see in verse 22, a man who had a vibrant daily walk with God one who was in deep fellowship with God. We see this again here in verse 22. Notice what it says. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea, Judea in place of in Judah over in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in the city of Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. We see there in verse 22. The, the tender heart, the, the, the soft conscience, the, the, the readiness, the eagerness, the willingness to hear from God and do what God was calling him to do. And he immediately, we know, he got up and he did that very thing. Now, we also knew, know from Luke chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, that Galilee and Nazareth were the, was the home base for both Joseph and Mary. We see here in Luke that Joseph, this is when Joseph was leaving, he got up and he went from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which was called Bethlehem. This was when Caesar made the, 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 uh, the declaration that all needed to go and, and um, register. And he takes Mary along with him, who was with child at that time. So we know that, that Nazareth was a hometown for the both of them. So not only because Nazareth would have been a place that would have been comfortable for them to land, because they probably knew some folks there, but also under divine providence, God led them there because we see here in the passage that what was spoken, Matthew says, what was spoken through the prophets, and then he gives another fulfillment. He shall be called a Nazarene. Jesus was indeed called a Nazarene. Now, what's interesting is if you try to hunt through your Old Testament scriptures and you try to find that quote right there, he shall be called a Nazarene, you don't find it. Some try to link Nazarene with some portions out of the book of Isaiah that talks about the root and the shoot from 
the, uh, the olive tree and the, the Hebrew word there for root is similar to Nazarene. And it, so they, they try to make some connection points there, but it seems to me that this is one of those occasions, and there are a few of these where in the New Testament, you see the New Testament writers saying things that were previously said that were not written and thus inscripturated from the Old Testament, but they get stated and written and thus inscripturated by our New Testament authors, as was this. It seems clear that Matthew was very familiar with prophets, plural, more than one, who had articulated that Jesus would be called a Nazarene. And thus, Matthew here inscripturates that, what those prophets spoke, uh, re with regard to the promised Messiah King, that he would be called a Nazarene. And Matthew states it, and he writes it, and thus inscripturates that for us here in the New Testament, the canon of scriptures. So again, uh, here in chapter 2, we, I say, have clearly seen Matthew unequivocally from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 2 hitch Jesus Christ to the Old Testament in the strongest way possible both through the fulfillment of prophecy and in fulfillment of types Matthew is saying to anyone willing to listen and so I'm asking you this morning are you willing to listen are you willing to follow this man from Galilee this Nazarene and give him your life in full and quick and complete obedience, even if it costs you everything, are you convinced that this Jesus from Galilee, this Nazarene, born of the Virgin Mary in Bethlehem, that he is indeed the Son of God, worthy of giving your whole life to? Matthew showed us that he was in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy and types, the one from Nazareth of Galilee, the one who will bring the ultimate fulfillment regarding God's people, the one who was called out of Egypt as his son, and the one who was born of a virgin in Bethlehem. This Jesus is indeed the God-man. And Matthew is articulating that very clearly, unapologetically, and he's going to ultimately say, as Jesus says, come, follow me. Come, follow me. Is this the God-man you want to follow? Let's pray.